Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Amen. So when Caesar was an up-and-coming Roman, when he was trying to impress uh, his colleagues in in an early time of his life when he had superiors, that didn't last a long time, he built a majestic palace on overlooking the sea. And by all accounts, it was magnificent, very large, very spacious, filled with all of the elegant um, uh, appointments that a wealthy man would have offered himself and his guests and his families at that time. It was um, a shining testament to his greatness right there on the seashore. And when it was finally finished, when everything was completed, when he came to inspect it before ostensibly he would enter it himself and welcome his family and friends, he walked around the building, we're told, and um, decided that he didn't like it. So he had it raised to the ground, completely destroyed and rebuilt. Now the historian I read telling of this account um, believed that Caesar was making a point. He was making a point that he was a big deal, that he was a very great man with exacting standards And he could build and unbuild and rebuild whatever he wanted. Well, there was only one man who was really that man. And that's the builder king. That's our Lord Jesus, who we hear from in this passage, saying some of the most remarkable things that came from his lips, the lips of a man who said remarkable things as a calling. We find many of them in this passage. And so let's take a look. Let's take a look and learn this lesson. Jesus had a vision to take over the world, and he called it the church. Let's take a look at that in this passage in these ways. Let's see, uh, who is he? What's his plan? 
How did he accomplish it? And then what's left for us? So let's start with who is he? Take a look at this first question. It's remarkable. When Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? That is a remarkable question to ask a group of people that follow you around. That's the kind of question rock stars, politicians, and eighth graders ask. (laughs) But someone else asked it, and he's really the only one who can ask it and be genuine about it. He's the only one who can ask that question about himself and really be questioning you about ultimately important things. Jesus asked that. And so the disciples that are with him, probably I think more than just the the 12, probably his, his entourage that was with him, they they provide the answers that the world gives for who Jesus is. They're very much like the answers that, that people give for who Jesus is today. They said, well, you're John the Baptist who at this time had died. They thought maybe came back. You're Elijah who was promised in the Hebrew scriptures to come before the promised one, almost the promised one, not quite the promised one maybe. You're Jeremiah or you're, one of other, you're another prophet. In other words, you're a great man and you're a great teacher and everybody in Galilee knows about you. You're a big deal. That's the world's answer. Almost no one that I meet wants to dismiss the person of Christ. The people of Christ, maybe so, but not the person of Christ. And so that's their first answer. And Jesus said something significant to them. And in fact, in doing so, he follows up with another question that identifies himself as the son of man. What does he say? All right. You know, basically, without saying anything, well, they're all wrong. And he says to them, but who do you say? I am. Hear that? Who do you say I am? Not who does the world say the son of man is, but who do you say I am? And Peter, we love Peter. Peter raises his hand and he says, I know, I know, I know, I know. And then maybe he just blurted it out or Jesus called on him. I made the raise the hand part up. But the point is Peter blurts out, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. What is remarkable Perhaps more remarkable than that declaration is Jesus' acceptance of that declaration of who he really is. If you were to understand, if you were to consider the mind of the first century uh, Jew or anyone familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, anyone in the long uh, 2,000 year um, history of the covenant people of God up to this time, you would have understood that Peter just said, Jesus You are the one the world was made for. You are the one the world is waiting for. You are the one that's going to make the world right. The Christ and the Son of God. Those are the two titles that consume the whole story of the Hebrew Scriptures. The very first Son of God is Adam. The very first anointed, we hear that language about, is David. So what what Peter is saying is like, Your humanity started over again, anointed to rule the earth like the son of David would be. You're everything. It's a way of saying in very compressed words, you're the alpha and the omega. You're the son of God and the son of man. You're the prophet, you're the priest, you're the king, you're the savior, you're the servant, you're everything. You are the whole point of all of history and everything. And Jesus, Jesus receives that affirmatively. He says, Peter, you're right. In a fashion, that's what he says. Peter, you're right. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Blessed are you. 
Blessed are you. And he receives that. And once he receives that, once you let people talk about you that way, either you are what they just said, or you're, you're an evil or crazy man, as C.S. Lewis mentioned. Jesus receives that, and he, and he goes on to say some even more remarkable things about himself. Who is this who has a plan for the world, calling it, calling it the church? Well, he says to Peter right here, he says, um, Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. What he's saying is my father in heaven did. And that means God agrees with you, Peter. My father attests to me. That's language we find in the gospel of John. My father attests to me. My father sent me. My father knows who I am. The God of heaven and earth, Lord Sabaoth, Elohim, Yahweh knows who I am. And he told you who I am. He'll tell all my people who I am. So that's pretty remarkable. He goes on to say he's going to build his church. We'll talk about that in a moment. But for right now, let's hear what he says. This visionary leader says, my mission is destined for success. I will not be denied. No one will overcome my purposes. And if that were not enough, to receive these great names and to say the Father attests to me and that my mission can't be stopped, he goes on to say the most remarkable thing perhaps of all. He says, I'm going to die, but then I'm going to come back to life. And then finally at the end of our passage, what does Jesus say? Maybe even still escalating it in verse 27. He says, and I'm coming back with my Father's angels and his glory and I will Bring every single human being who ever lived to account for all they did and all they didn't do and all they said and all they didn't say. That's who Jesus says he is. If you're exploring Christianity, then understand from the beginning that Jesus uh, is a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. He is a priest, but he's more than a priest. He is a king, but he's more than a king. He's the son of God. He's everything. He's everything. For everyone, and he is, he is the exit point of all life on earth for everyone will answer to him. That's what he said about himself. You know, it's, um, I always smile when I read uh, academics or other books and, and I see dates and after the date it says CE or BCE, you know, common era or before common era. I mean, the, the, A.D. and and B.C., that's not from the Bible. So I I don't have a dog in that fight, really. I just find find it funny that, like, that's their evasion. You know, it's the same thing. There's still the focal point, the fulcrum upon which all of history is counted for us is this person, Jesus, who was born of Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. That's who he is. He's the point of history. He's why it was all made. And we're told by by Paul in a book in the New Testament that by him and in him and through him all things were made and in him all things hold together. That's who we believe in. That's who you worship. That is who died and came for you. And he had a plan. Take a look at his plan because his plan um, is being executed all around the world even as we speak. We must get into our hearts about Jesus is that he was, um, to borrow the language that's overused from our age, he was the quintessential visionary leader. He understood what he was doing. He knew how he was going to do it. There is evidently in heaven a giant whiteboard where all the plans of earth are worked out. 
And unlike the whiteboard in my office, it doesn't lie to you. It doesn't make promises it won't keep. Everything's realized. And what is he saying? He starts talking about himself. And this is important because what we need to learn about Jesus' plan is that it's his plan to execute. He says, I will build my church. We'll talk about Peter and the rock in a little bit. But right now I want you to see, I will build my church. You see the... You see the first-person reality of this mission. I will build my church. I will engage in my mission. I will do my work. I will execute my plan. I will be involved in every conversion, in every gathering of every congregation, and the establishment of every local church. It will be my own handiwork. I am the craftsman from heaven, and I'll use the Spirit of God and the people of God and all the wonders of creation, but make no mistake, I am building my church. The word build means to construct or to erect. It's the same word that's used earlier in the Gospel of Matthew at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. If you're not familiar with the, with the Gospel of Matthew, right near the beginning, it's where he gives those famous Sermon on the Mount words about the Beatitudes and who's blessed. And at the end of it, he says, the wise, what, builder? Builds on a rock. And the foolish, what? Builder builds on the sand. It's the same thing. Jesus is saying, I'm going to build. I'm going to govern. I'm going to guide. I'm going to equip. I'm going to design. I'm going to endow. I'm going to work through history and clergy and saints and donkeys and everything else he's worked through all in his history. And he says now something else about that. For right now, for all we know, Jesus is building this very uh, flat, organic, um, very hip community where everybody just lives together in perfect harmony which is kind of what he's doing, but he's doing a little bit more than that. He's actually put someone in charge of it. Now, this is remarkable because if you were here Friday night, um, you saw that, that when the New Testament fulfills the Great Commission, they actually build organizations. I'm going to use the I word. They build, and they build institutions. They build institutions. And it starts here. And by institution, I mean that hierarchy, an org chart, that elders and deacons and pastors and a confession, uh, a creed of doctrine, and, and behavior that was expected. Um, this was a pretty significant, elaborate organizational structure. And this is starts right at the beginning. Jesus says, and Peter, you're going to be the rock on which I build this church. And here's a newsflash from a former Roman Catholic to a bunch of Protestants. Um, Jesus did put Peter in charge of the church here. That's kind of what happened. Not forever, not to pass it on one after another, but certainly for that generation. You can see that's what the language means. It doesn't mean that he made faith the cornerstone, even though faith is the cornerstone of entering into the church. He says, Peter, I'm going to put a person in charge. You're the first among equals. And what you should know, too, is that the next language in verse 19, all those you, if we were in the South, we want to make them plural, it would be yous, you know, because those are, those are plural yous. So, so he's, he's broadening that, but, but we don't do plural in English, but you need to see, first of all, that he created a church, and his church was going to have structure and reality to it and shape to it. It's going to be like a congregation. See, well, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm emphasizing this is that, that we're liable to think, because of where we grow up and, and what our institutional history has been, we're liable to think that the church was this elegant, organic, and spiritual community that just kind of operated um, you know, like a cell operates, just sort of works with each other and, and functions properly. And it's never been that way. It's always had, had structure and position and place and jobs. Jobs some people did, jobs other people did. In other words, it was um, an organization with a mission and authority. 
What I want to see is we continue to talk about Jesus and we've seen who he was and uh, what his plan was to build a church. I want us to see that this church had a very definitive mission. We talked about it today, the Missio Dei, the mission of God. And that mission was to storm the gates of death. It's an offensive, well, it's offensive to some, but it's a mission on the offense is what I mean. It's not a fortress mission. Now, in cities, cities of that day um, would have walls, and walls would need gates so you can get in and you can get out. And so when you hear the gate language in this passage, and you hear Hades or hell, uh, which is the, the Greek word behind that, you realize that that's an emblem of all death and judgment and all that's dysfunctional and broken about the world and how it seems to be um, established impenetrably in the world and inconquerably. And Jesus says, that's our mission. Those gates, see, it's the, it's the death and decay of the world that is on defense. And Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of injustice and prejudice and um, greed and anger Those things that are the shadows of death, those things that are the creeping rot of death before it actually kills us dead, he says, those things, you're going to go attack those things with my gospel. You're going to do that, and you'll have real authority. He uses rabbinical language here, this binding language. Um, That was language that the rabbis used to say that when you're living within the promises and the covenant of God, you could declare that he's given the church the right to make declarations about life and death forever and ever. You know, it's remarkable, but in the end, you'll find out that the church had more authority. The church, the messed up church, had more authority than anyone else anywhere in any time, any king, any parliament, anyone, ever. And you're part of that. I want to encourage you, you are part of the greatest institution in the history of humanity with the greatest positive impact in the history of the globe. That's growing now. The church, congregations being started is growing now for the last hundred years, including today, at a pace that far outstrips anything ever seen in Christian history. It makes the amazing um, explosion of faith in the book of Acts look like preschool. It's magnificent what's happening, and you're living in that age. Jesus is doing what he said. He's establishing converts that he brings into community, that he gives pastors and elders and and deacons to and gives a a creed and a faith to and a life to and a mission to, and you're living at part of that right now. And it's making declarations. It's making a declaration in this age that God forgives everyone who comes to him in Jesus And it's making a declaration about the next age that when this age is over and that door is closed, every single soul, everywhere, in every age will meet with Jesus and he'll ask them about their life. In fact, not really. He'll tell them about their life. And you're part of that. You should be proud. Don't get your church history from bumper stickers. The church's history is um, broken terribly in places. And do not hear me say that the church has no sin. Not the church in, I'm not saying that about the church in America, certainly not about the evangelical church. I'm not saying that about the church. What I'm saying is you should be proud. It's your honor to be in a church that brought mercy and compassion and orphanages and a thousand other good things, hospitals to the world. 
You know, we're not the Nazis trying to be better. We're the church. We're not like taking a bad thing and trying to put a good spin on it. Jesus is building this thing. And it's been a good thing. It's been a profoundly good thing for all these ages. And you're part of it. And it's, it's working, as we'll see in just a little bit again. But first, let's see how he's going to do that. Because right now we've seen who is he, what's his plan. His plan is to build the church all over the world. And now I want us to see how is he going to do that. And um, that's where our Savior becomes our Savior. That's where he becomes not just a king. That's where his, his majesty humbles us. Because what does he say? Verse 19 or uh, 21, from that time he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Here, hear what that says. Actually, imagine what that says. He just said he's the one that was to come that will make everything right. And now he's saying that, that his plan, he'll accomplish that by death. He'll accomplish that by absorbing all the death and all the rot and all the injustice and all the betrayal and all the denial and all the sin of his people. It's remarkable. It's more than remarkable. Remarkable is a, a, a casual word for what this is. This is the Son of God. This is him who knew no sin becoming sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the rich becoming poor. This is the first becoming last. This is the beloved Son of God becoming the lover of sinful men and women. Remember what he says in the Gospel of John which said about him, Jesus, knowing that his end was near and that he had come from the Father and would return to the Father, now showed them the full extent or the end of his love. And he got up from the table and he wrapped a a towel around his waist. He stripped himself first, wrapped a towel around his waist and became their servant. He's he's explaining this passage. He's living this passage. He's, He's telling you that he came to die. If you're here exploring Christianity, this is Jesus and his mission. It's who he is and what he did. And this passage says that Jesus shows his disciples. It's important to understand. He doesn't just say these words, right? That's not what is being communicated to us. Jesus didn't say simply, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. Um, The elders are chief priests, then I'll die. That would be done in a moment. This language tells us that he explained this to them. He explained what what becomes for us all our hope and gospel. We're alienated from God. We're all under judgment for our own sin and for the sin of Adam. We have no hope of finding our way back to him. So he came to seek and save what was lost. And not only did he come and seek and save them, not only that, but then he stood in their place and he died for them. That's what he's explaining. That's what he's going to do. He's going to make the whole world Right again by taking all that's wrong on himself. This message is compelling all over the globe today. There's no other message like that. Because there's no other savior like that. And there's no other community that understands that except this congregation and 10 million other congregations all over the world. And that's what we're to do. It's told us that uh, King George of England, after he lost the war, was told that... um, George Washington was going to give up his army 
which is not a thing that happens in history. And I would tell you right now, if I, I would not give up my army if I just won a big old battle. I just would not do that. I would, ha- I would keep my army. But George Washington did give up his army. You know what King George said? If he does that, before it happens, he said, if he does that, he will be the greatest man who ever lived. Well, he did do that, and he wasn't the greatest man who ever lived. Jesus was the greatest man who ever lived. And he has a mission. The Missio Dei, he has a purpose. He said in very clear terms, my mission is about me and my glory and my church that I will build by dying for her first, by proving the full extent of my love, by making myself as safe as I possibly can for you, that you might know that it is safe to come to me in your brokenness and sin. And that's my a plea, my plea to you if you're exploring Christianity. Jesus made himself safe. He is the Alpha and the Omega, and he found a way to make him safe. People tell of uh, powerful senators who sit in the antechamber of the Oval Office, and they, um, they talk about their big plan. Talk about their big plan when they're going to go see the president, even a president they don't much like. And, uh, and they talk about how their demeanor changes when they walk into the Oval Office. <laughs> it is a power room. And the man or soon the woman who, who holds that office is a powerful person. It changes. Jesus is everything like that and infinitely more. And he made himself safe for you. And he's told you, he's told you, to be part of what he's doing. How can we be part of what he's doing? Well, just a few ways and then we'll we'll close. Um, The first way to be part of what he's doing is to get out of his way. Listen to him tell Peter to get out of his way. Peter hears this and Peter says, no, that's not, no, no, far be it from you, Lord. It shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned to him and said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block is what that means. You're a scandal to me. You don't have your mind set on the things of God, but the things of men. It's interesting that the original word that Peter uses that's translated far be it from you is actually a word that implies God's mercy. He's basically saying, God have mercy on you. You know, what he's basically saying is, I know what's good for you and for everybody else better than you do. This is the man who just said he was the Christ, the son of the living God. And he's saying, I know how to fix this better than you do. And we do that all the time too. You know, we we can't now tell Jesus not to go to his passion because we've all seen that his passion has been fulfilled and he's risen from the grave. But we can wrestle out of Christ's hand um, the missio dei for the missio me. The one I want. And there's a couple um, suspects that are favorites among folks in our tradition. One is the, the preservationist mission where the church um, preserves a, a, in a fortress all that's right and good and being lost and taken away by the academy and by the media and entertainment and, and everything else and by the courts. And we hold and we preserve that and we, we hold to it. And 
These aren't bad things. There's much that's been taken away from our culture that will make our culture more dangerous for souls. There's no doubt about that. Another, another favorite is the therapeutic mission. We live in an age um, that's coming to terms and finding language for deep human internal brokenness. You know, affluence, I'll put it this way, just because you live in the first world doesn't mean it's not hard. Because guess what? Whatever world you live in, there you are. And we want to get fixed. We want our families fixed. We want our children fixed. We want peace of mind. And we bend the gospel to a therapeutic worldview. But I would tell you now, as I tell people in Green Lake back in Seattle, if you want a peace of mind, a, a mature sense of self, uh, good relationships and communication in your marriage, and uh, kids that are functional and work in the world, there are a lot easier ways to get that than becoming a Christian. Because there's a lot of counselors that can help you with that. There's a lot of common grace out there that can give you that understanding. Most of it's been saturated in a few hundred years of Christian discipleship and then torque, but it's all out there. Jesus wants you to die to yourself. It's a lot harder than that. But we bend it that way. Liturgically, we want worship done right, done well. Isn't it nice to go to a church that doesn't embarrass you at worship? Isn't that refreshing? It's not the end. It's not the purpose. It's not the purpose of the church to not embarrass you at worship or make you think, oh, my stars, why is Brad wearing that shirt? It's a nice shirt, by the way. <laughs> and then finally, one of our favorites, the intellectual missio me. We like to be right. We're right about a lot of stuff. I'll just come out and say it. We got a lot of stuff right. We really do. And I love that about us. Kind of love that about me, to be honest. But it's a really pathetic purpose for the church. So get out of his way. Let go. How do you get out of his way? Well, you get out of his way by following his way. That's the second thing you need to do. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Those are the stakes. What must you, what must you bear? What must you give up? What comfort? What consolations? What idols, what wealth, what time, what reputation, what must you, what little precious in your hand must you let go of? That's part of your call to treasure the Savior and his church and his mission more than everything. You go ahead and give that up. If you sitting here today can't imagine something that you're dying to now or died to recently, then you may be dead. Because that's the way of the Christian life. And I assure you of this, you will, not, you will not bear one offense. You will not forgive one person their half-hearted request for forgiveness. You will not re-embrace your spouse or your child. You will do none of that. Give up no money, no time. You'll lose no job for your faith. You'll, you'll lose nothing that in the end you won't get paid back for a hundred thousand, a million times more. You will not get to heaven and think, wow, this is it? This is all that happened? This is all we got? You won't do that. God is no man's, no woman's debtor. The sufferings here in this world, this dying Jesus talks about, this dying here, well, this dying isn't worth comparing to the living that happens when we receive our reward. So lean into it, sacrifice, 
Be like Jesus, follow his way. Two more things and then we're done. Part of that, directly part of that, linked immediately to that, but I want to give it its own emphasis, is that you, he calls the church, if you want to do this, you got to get out of his way, live his way, and live for the end of the ages. Get this, get this image in your mind. It's real. It's not sentimental. It's not romantic. It's you and I standing before Jesus being told about our life. That's going to happen. Jesus said this. If you believe you're forgiven, then the same person who said that said this. You're going to stand there. So that's a good thing. Actually, it's, it's scary. I think it is scary. Don't get me wrong. It's a scary thing, but it's a good thing, right? He's loved you. He, you're going to look at his hands, right? You're going you're gonna to look at his hands and you're going to see, well, I know this much. Whatever he says, I know he loves me. I know he's made it right for me. I know I'm going to be okay. I know he's going to have mercy, but he's also going to speak in truth. And I'm glad that I lived those 20, 50, 70 years for this moment. You don't make enough of the end. You just don't because you're like me, because there's a football game on and because you have work to do and the grass needs to be cut and all those things. But we need to make more of it and build his church. That's what I'm a church planting leader. That's what I do. So I build his church. You knew that. You know I was going to get out of here without that. Because I'm actually going to go back to the word he uses, ecclesia, I'll build my church. That's only used twice in the Gospels. The next one is in, in chapter 18. And it's about the church being the church. It's about the church calling people to repentance and having authority over them. It's actually about church discipline. But as I said this morning, I'm going to let Pastor Brad or Pastor Brian preach on that. We'll let them finish up there. But right now I want you to say that the only two times it's used is in the Gospels. Jesus says, I'm going to build it. And then he says, this is how you're going to live in it. You need to be part of building churches. The church in America between 1865 and 1906 established uh, one new church for every 350 new people in the country. Now, that's not a biblical number, but let's, let's think about that for a moment. According to the Census Bureau, if we did 1 to 350 between now and 2050, we would need to plant 228,000 churches. I mean, okay, let's cut it in half. Still, that's a lot of work to do because every church fades away. How many churches do you know that are still preaching the gospel that are 500 years old? 250 years old. 125 years old. 75 years old. Churches don't last forever. Trees don't last forever. Parents don't last forever. The next generation lasts. That's why the church Jesus is building is to replant itself over and over again in every place for all ages until he returns in his glory with his angels to get answers from everyone. That's what we do. That's what your mission is in Boise and all over the world. And, and be encouraged because it's working. The, the church is covering the earth with the knowledge of God like the waters cover the sea. You know, Christianity is the only world faith that's truly a world faith in the sense that it's the only world faith whose geographic center of gravity has ever shifted. And now it's in its third, I think. So we went from Palestine to Europe and then off somewhat into Eastern Europe and, and Russia. Then we probably went to America. We could say that was another shift. It's been brown and white and now it's browning again. 
It's in South America. There will be more Pentecostals. Pentecostals in Africa by 3050 than there will be Americans. God loves Pentecostals, evidently. He does. You can, it's true. Come on. Give it up. He does. He loves Presbyterians, too. And you're part of that. I'll just tell one quick story to um, put some specifics on this. In March, I was in St. Petersburg, and I was uh, meeting with pastors, 10 pastors from 9 or 10 or 11 time zones. I can't remember. All Russian-speaking. Not all of them Russian was their primary language, but all, most of them it was. And we were establishing the first Presbyterian church in the history of the Russian-speaking world. Not the first Christians there, but the first Presbyterian church in the history of the Russian-speaking world, 2016. There was a man there for whom Russian wasn't his uh, primary language. I'll tell you where he's from, but he and his wife are remarkable people. It's a Muslim country. And his wife's family, her family, immediate, and her extended family were the first Christians in that people group ever. It's about 100 people in their churches now. He's the pastor. There's the New Testament that they have and can have through some archaic constitutional law that they had to go to court for but they're still pretty much underground. And there's no Old Testament except he's found online. He and his wife found online Genesis and Psalms in their language online. And guess what they did? They copied it out by hand. They copied it out by hand, and they copy others out by hand. And they hand them out, and if they get caught, three years in prison. Jesus is doing this all over the world. And you're part of it, and you should be proud of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercies. I ask you to bless and build up your church. We thank you for your kindness to us. Let us be part of this. Help us be encouraged and hopeful. Help us serve you well. In Jesus' name, amen.